Hello there. Welcome back to MLEX's weekly podcast covering the top global regulatory stories. James Paniki with you. Thank you for your company. And we have so much to get through this week, given that, as I'm sure you're aware, the dust has now settled on the US presidential elections and Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States of America. And we'll turn our attention to the possible impact of a Biden administration on one of our key areas of interest, antitrust. We'll also take a look at how the outcome might affect Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act 1996. This is the piece of legislation that means that digital platforms can't be held accountable for what they publish. In fact, they might even dispute the use of the verb publish. Then we'll take a look at a sidebar issue of the elections, the vote in favour of Prop 24 in California. Should we care about a state-based referendum? You bet California's decision to move ahead with a data protection regulator is likely to reverberate not just around the US, but also around the world. We've got the sharpest MLEX minds lined up and ready to chat. Jenna Ebersole is a mergers and acquisitions correspondent. Dave Pereira is a correspondent covering tech issues. Both of them are in Washington, D.C., and both of them join me now from their homes. Okay, Jenna, let's start with you. How has antitrust historically been affected by different parties taking control of the White House? So, you know, actually, there haven't been major shifts. If you look back historically, um, there's a saying I've heard, which is, you know, antitrust has kind of played out between the 40 yard lines. You'll have to explain that to those who don't follow American football. (laughs) So rather than, uh, you know, end zone to end zone, it's kind of just in the middle. You'll have some changes at the margins between um, like Democrats and Republicans. Republicans are generally seen as you might be a little bit less enforcement minded. Um, So maybe you would have a borderline deal handled differently by one administration versus another. Although we we dug up, we had some data we cited from Deckert that showed under Trump, if you look at a period from the first quarter of 2017 through the third quarter of 2020, and the number of complaints and significant deals to black mergers, um, there were 16. And actually, if you look at a similar period in the Obama administration, there were um, 18. So it's not it's not a wild difference between them. Okay, so so conventional wisdom is saying that there won't be a lot of a difference as the new administration kicks in. But could it be different this time? Could we buck that trend? And could it no longer be played at the whatever it was the 40 yard? (laughs) Yeah, so uh, I think that's what's so interesting now is that antitrust, it's become a lot more maybe hotly debated a lot more center stage and political discussions. So Um, You know, even in the last few years since President Obama was in the White House and Joe Biden was his vice president, we've seen seen it emerge as a more center stage issue. So um, you have people questioning whether antitrust has been whether we've had the right approach in the U.S. to antitrust um, going back. So, um, you know, a, a key issue will be whether Biden first does who does he choose to lead the antitrust agencies, the DOJ and the Federal Trade Commission, you know, is it people who maybe might represent the more sort of establishment view? Uh, Is it people, you know, the two Democrats who are currently commissioners at the FTC, they've been critical of some of the FTC's approach, including on pharmaceutical mergers. So, you know, Biden himself is seen as a little bit more of a moderate person in the Democratic Party. Um, But we'll see how his antitrust agenda might look, given this current sort of moment in antitrust. 
Um, we should explain also to non-American listeners that the rule of thumb has always been that Republicans are less interventionist than uh, Democrats. But does that still hold true? I mean, given the hostility in some sections of the Republican Party towards, for example, Silicon Valley, can we still say that Republicans are now less interventionist? I think that conventional wisdom has been true to an extent, but we haven't seen those those wild shifts in the past. And, and now, certainly, as you're pointing out, the tech companies are under scrutiny now. And, you know, presumably that that will continue in a new administration. So at least in in some areas, you're not, you know, you might not see a major change there. Well, let's talk about the new administration, assuming that Trump eventually concedes in spite of his current recalcitrance, and that the uh, transition occurs as it should in 2021. What happens then? What are the next steps? Yeah, so in the immediate aftermath of the of the inauguration, you'll see um, what happens between all you know changes at the White House. You'll see new people appointed at the head of these agencies. Um, so the DOJ is led by a single enforcer. So you'll see you know perhaps a new acting uh, person in charge there until someone can be Senate confirmed. At the FTC, it's a little bit different because you have a five-member commission. So depending on who leaves and who stays, you know, ultimately you assume there will be a new. Uh, chairman confirmed um, for Biden or one of the current Democrats will take over at the FTC. So, you know, in in the Trump transition and the early stage, there was the FTC was actually split one one Republicans and Democrats for a while. So, um, you know, that kind of forced the two enforcers to to agree if they wanted to vote anything out. So, you know, we could see a two two split. We don't know yet what the makeup will be there. So that would be the thing to watch. Okay, look, so much for the presidency and the executive branch. What about Congress? Where do lawmakers fit into this uh, to this outlook? Yeah, so I think the, the first question is, will Republicans retain their majority in the Senate? That's still not clear at this point. If they do, that means that Biden, you know, his picks to lead the agencies will need to be confirmed by the Senate. Um, unless he chooses at the FTC a current sitting Democratic commissioner. So if Republicans are in charge, does that inform who he's choosing, who he's able to to get confirmed? And then second question is, you know, legislation. To a certain extent, Biden's picks, they can perhaps apply the law more creatively, more aggressively than in the past, but they will still confront, they'll still have to take their, their cases to court and, you know, a lot of their judges who've been appointed by Trump and you've got case law that could potentially make, you know, dramatic shifts difficult. Um, so in terms of actual legislation, that's where you would see, you know, a more dramatic change. And um, the Democratic controlled House Antitrust Subcommittee issued a major report, listed a wide range of changes that they, they'd like to see to the law. Some have a little bit more broad support than others. So this, again, you know, depending on who has the Senate and um, what legislative change we're able to see, um, you know, that's really an open question still at this point. So the Democrats have quite an antitrust shopping list. Uh, which of those proposals are likely to go forward uh, in the Biden administration, assuming, obviously, that they can get it through uh, the Senate, whatever the uh, makeup of the Senate might be? 
Well, so we have, so some of the measures would overturn, you know, U.S. Supreme Court precedent, force companies to separate lines of business. Others are more modest, such as shifting burdens of proof. So companies must show that their behavior is pro-competitive um, rather than the government or private plaintiffs proving it's anti-competitive. So uh, there is some Republican support for this burden shifting idea. Um, so you might see you know, some of the things on this list maybe being more likely, depending on how things land in Congress. But um, and they, I mean, the other interesting thing about the report is there's recommendations on changes for big tech merger reviews involving dominant companies. So, you know, presuming that they're anti-competitive, uh, that would, you know, put a disproportionate burden on tech companies compared to other companies trying to merge. Um, so I think we we haven't seen yet that there would be enough support for something like that to actually make it into law. Mm. Dave, this is a perfect moment to bring you into the conversation because one big issue that has come up for debate recently in Congress is the future of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act 1996. Now, for the benefit of our non-American listeners, remind us, uh, hopefully with an American football analogy, remind us what that piece of legislation is and what it does. Um, Gosh, I I don't follow football. Um. (laughs) Section 230 uh, is uh, the law that uh, says that uh, websites don't have to assume the liability for content that their users post. So if you're Facebook, if you're Twitter, if you're Google, and you're posting uh, content that your users wrote, that they tweeted, they put online, even if it's uh, somehow uh, on the other side of the law, Unless those websites materially contributed to their development, the websites themselves aren't liable for for having kept them online. Mm. Tell us what the moderator's dilemma is. What does that expression entail? The moderator's dilemma is why uh, Section 230 became law in the first place. Uh, the dilemma is the dilemma at the time, back in the 19, uh, uh, 1990s, was that if a website took down one piece of content because it was somehow objectionable or caused liability, then it could, under a couple of court cases that were uh, building up at the time, be potentially liable for all of the pieces of content that it failed to take down. So the dilemma was, do you try to police the content on your website and therefore potentially have to catch everything that is a potential source of liability, or do you have an entirely hands-off approach? And that way, uh, if somebody comes uh, with a lawsuit that says uh, you're liable for having let this content uh, up on your website, your response can be, was, well, we leave everything up, therefore we have no liability. The Section 230 resolved that dilemma by allowing websites blanket immunity, essentially, with, with a couple of exceptions. Uh, for their content moderation decisions. Mm. So it's clear why Section 230 would be favoured by the uh, platforms because it uh, gives them very limited responsibility for the stuff that appears on those platforms. So what's the case against it? What's controversial about Section 230? 
it's grown more controversial over the decades. When it, when it was passed in in 1996, the the internet was uh, bulletin boards. That that's how most people experienced the internet. Nobody could possibly envision Facebook or Twitter or or even Google. So. Over the years, it's the, the internet has become much more prevalent and ubiquitous in everybody's life. And Section 230 has been invoked in more and more cases where the harm felt by people to content being left up online has had real life effects. There, there, there have been people who have suffered sexual harassment because of, uh, content left up online and, and they've tried to find relief from uh, big platform companies, but but they've not been able to find it because platforms don't have liability for user-generated content. Another more recent problem with Section 230 has been highly political in nature, and that primarily has been an artifact of the Trump era. You have a lot of Republicans who have been accusing platforms of anti-conservative bias, saying that uh, conservative content is taken down at a greater pace than liberal content uh, and that uh, platforms should not enjoy Section 230 liability protections if that's the case. So they Section 230 has, used, has served as a useful weak point, a useful vulnerability for conservatives upset about putative censorship uh, to to attack the online platforms on. And I said putative because there's no real strong evidence that there's systemic bias against conservatives online. But given those political atmospherics, what are the prospects uh, for Section 230 changing under a Biden administration? They don't disappear to to zero uh, because uh, Joe Biden has expressed some reservations about Section 230. In fact, he actually told the New York Times uh, in an editorial board interview that uh, it should be revoked immediately. And and his campaign uh, has uh, repeatedly tussled with uh, with Facebook. Uh, just earlier this week, there was a, uh, a deputy press secretary of his that took to Twitter to uh, complain uh, pretty heavily about uh, about Facebook. So it, it, even though uh, Section 230 criticism recently has been primarily coming from Republicans. The fact that we will now have a Democratic administration doesn't mean that it drops down to zero. One thing I should add, though, is that um, one of the things the Trump administration did was it put a petition in front of the Federal Communications Commission urging that regulatory body to implement new rules interpreting Section 230. And there was a lot of doubt about whether the uh, Communications Commission, uh, which is not known for its involvement in content moderation decisions, uh, had authority. The current FCC uh, general counsel said, yes, in fact, it does have jurisdiction. And the current chairman has said that he's going to go forward with a rulemaking. That effort is very likely to disappear under a uh, Biden uh, FCC. Okay, guys, it'll be interesting to see how things uh, unfold in coming months. Thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been great fun. Thanks, James. Thank you. Take care. Jenna Ebersole and Dave Pereira are MLEX correspondents based in Washington, D.C., and we'll post a link to some of their recent writing on the issues we've been talking about today at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. Just head for the Insight Centre tab. 
Still to come today, Prop 24, how California's privacy regulator will make history. And you're listening to MLEX's weekly podcast on regulatory affairs. I'm James Paniki. Thank you for making it this far. Well, it was indeed an historic vote. Piggybacking on the US presidential election, the state of California asked the electorate whether to adopt the country's first modern comprehensive privacy laws. The answer was a solid, although not a unanimous, yes. To talk us through Prop 24, we're joined now by Amy Miller, our senior correspondent covering privacy, and Mike Swift, our chief global digital risk correspondent. Both are based in our San Francisco bureau. Okay, Amy, let's start with you. First up, tell me what we need to know about uh, Prop 24 and how it came about. Well, Proposition 24, uh, it's also called the California Privacy Rights Act, and um, it's an effort to strengthen and update the California Consumer Privacy Act, which took effect in January. Um, The backer of the California Consumer Privacy Act, uh, Alistair McTaggart, had initially started out as a ballot initiative, and it was uh, taken over by the state legislature and passed by the legislature and became law that way. But uh, after it passed, all the efforts to amend it started, and uh, Alistair was very concerned that there were too many efforts to weaken the law. Uh, he was really concerned that basic rights were going to be undermined by some of these amendments that were proposed. Um, luckily, most of the amendments that would have weakened it ended up uh, just falling by the wayside. But he introduced the CPRA uh, this fall. And what that's going to do is create the California Privacy Protection Agency. And that's going to be a data protection enforcement body. It's going to have uh, authority really in in many ways superior to the FTC. uh, And it'll be on par with data protection authorities in the European Union. And uh, the the CPRA is also going to establish new... um, controls and restrictions on how AI can be used to profile individuals, and it's going to set uh, tougher penalties for violating uh, kids' privacy. And we should uh, clarify, just because this is something I wasn't initially aware of, um, Alistair McTaggart is in fact not a lawmaker. He's not a politician. He is uh, just a, a property developer, right, in, in California? Yes, yes. He's a, he's a real estate developer in California. Yes, very wealthy uh, gentleman. He's basically funded both of these efforts out of his own pocket. Okay, Mike, you guys were watching the results of the Proposition 24 vote on November the 3rd. Were there any surprises in how Californians voted? Yeah, uh, James, we actually uh, sat down and crunched the numbers, which was really fun. Uh, We were, I think, the only ones to do that and and sort of came up with a surprising figure that uh, result that um, some of the strongest support for Prop 24 was actually in Silicon Valley. Um, For example, 56% of voters statewide supported it. But in San Mateo County, which is the home of Facebook, it got 59% of the vote. And in Santa Clara County, um, which is the home of Apple, Intel, Zoom, uh, LinkedIn, Google, and many other companies, it actually got 58.4% of the vote. So that was a little surprising. Um, no one really knows because, you know, nobody does like exit polls for things like propositions, but 
um, just asking around. I spoke to one uh, law professor who's a critic of the proposition, and he said, oh, it's because there's so many lawyers in Silicon Valley. So maybe that was the reason. We don't know. But uh, it actually did have very strong support. Alistair McTaggart's explanation was it's because people actually know what's going on under the hood with these companies on privacy. And that's why the measure got so much support here. Mm. There was an exception, though, wasn't there, in the sense that San Francisco, the city of San Francisco, where you would also assume a lot of uh, literate in the sense of privacy literacy uh, people live, um, but the uh, the enthusiasm there wasn't quite as great. Yeah, that's right. A majority of people voted against it in San Francisco, and McTaggart uh, said, well, you know, San Francisco is always an outlier. <laughs> that's definitely true. So, um, uh, you know, the theory there may have been that, uh, you know, one of the main criticisms of the proposition was that it didn't go far enough, that um, it still requires people to opt in. They, consumers have to take some sort of action to prevent their data from being shared. And a lot of critics feel uh, it should be the other way around, that companies shouldn't be able to just do what they want with data without getting permission first. So it's possible that um, folks in San Francisco wanted to see an even stronger privacy law than what they got. Mike, I don't want to dwell on the uh, on the breakdown too much, but there was also, based on your analysis, there was also a rural-urban divide, right? There was, uh, as there is right now in America. You know, one of the really striking um, results of the presidential campaign was, you know, how strong Democrats were in more urbanized areas and how strong Republicans were in more rural areas. And that was definitely true for this measure as well. Um, it was very unpopular in some of the more rural parts of the state, um, places, you know, people outside of California have never heard of like Modoc County. And uh, we called the uh, chief elected official in Modoc County and she was like sort of shrugged and said, I don't know why nobody liked it, but, but it, it only got like 30%, 35% of the vote there. So, um, I guess more regulation is not very popular in rural parts of the United States. Sure. Amy, now that Prop 24 has passed uh, with a convincing, you know, 56 plus percent of the vote, what happens next and when will the law uh, actually come into effect? The California Attorney General's office uh, can hand over rulemaking authority to the new agency as soon as July 1st, 2021, and then the agency is going to finalize its enforcement guidelines one year later. Enforcement's going to begin on January 1st, 2023, and the board members are going to be appointed 90 days after the law takes effect. Um, And the agency is going to be made up of five board members appointed by California's governor, along with the California attorney general and the leaders of the two chambers of the California legislature. Okay, so it's not going to happen tomorrow, but there is a clear schedule or schedule, as you would say, in place there. Now, uh, Mike, we know that privacy standards in California tend to resonate uh, beyond the Golden State. Uh, so is that likely to be the case here? Could there be a national uh, and I suppose potentially even an international uh, ramification to this uh, California Privacy Rights Act? Uh, that's what a lot of people think uh, remains to be seen. Um, you know, critics of the law um, feel like, well, this this is going to really galvanize uh, Congress to uh, get off the dime and pass a national privacy law. I mean, the, the United States is 
kind of unique or almost unique among developed nations and not having a comprehensive national privacy law. And the feeling is uh, among some critics like industry that uh, this is a bad law and it should force Congress to step up and, and uh, pass a law that would preempt this. Um, whether that actually happens, um, there's a lot of doubt about that given how dysfunctional the United States Congress is. And we still don't really know um, as we speak today who's going to be in charge of the United States Senate. So, that, you know, we don't know yet. But one really um, intriguing possibility is that it, the privacy agency that the new law creates is specifically empowered to work with regulatory agencies across the United States, but also in other countries. So, you know, it's possible they could cooperate with the ACCC in Australia or with uh, DPA's data protection authorities in Europe, you know. So uh, th- they could really become a player in the world privacy scene. And, and uh, well, that remains to be seen, but uh, it's certainly a possibility. Now, Amy, you and Mike have written an analysis on how dark patterns could become a significant a regulatory issue under the CPRA. Remind us first what dark patterns actually are and why they might be significant. Yeah, dark patterns are the online design used to nudge consumers into giving up their privacy. It's like if uh, they make it hard for you to exercise your rights under the CCPA to click on the do not track. They'll maybe make it difficult for you to get to that place or they'll make it sound like it's actually undermining your privacy or they'll do little things to kind of not get you to to exercise your privacy rights in in ways that you could. So the California Consumer Privacy Act uh, states that any agreement obtained through the use of dark patterns does not constitute consent. But that's kind of a vague, broad definition people are are concerned about. So it's going to be up to this new privacy protection agency to uh, clarify and define what dark patterns are actually in practice. Uh, And it's something that's been getting a lot more attention uh, from there's been a group of researchers affiliated with Stanford University that have reported on some of these patterns from big companies, media companies like BuzzFeed and the LA Times and Home Depot, like Forever 21 retailers. Um, and then, and then it's also been uh, mentioned something of a it's it's a it's an issue for at least one FTC commissioner, uh, a Rohit Chopra, a Democrat. Uh, he he's mentioned this often. He actually brought it up when the agency announced a ten million dollar settlement, resolving charges that the online children's education company, uh, Age of Age of Learning, had billed thousands of customers for renewed membership without their consent. And he really used that as a chance to kind of shine the spotlight on, on what Facebook and Google and Microsoft and Uber are doing to kind of undermine privacy rights. So we're expecting some, some debate on what uh, dark patterns actually are as, as the uh, agency sets out to define, define that for companies. Mm. Okay, maybe the best way for us to wrap things up here today is to end with a comment from uh, both of you on Prop 24. What do you believe is the most significant uh, aspect of uh, this successful referendum and what is likely to be its most significant uh, impact? Maybe, Mike, let's start with you. Well, I guess I would say the the creation of this new agency and, you know, you can never predict who's going to run these agencies or how effective they will be. But, you know, uh, one sort of um, interesting uh, fact here is it with the agencies, it's actually going to each year give out grants, which is going to try and uh, for educational grants to try and uh, promote the awareness of privacy and what's happening with your personal data. So, you know, I think it's possible that um, 
this this agency could be an aggressive enforcer. Certainly, that remains to be seen. But it could also, you know, really sort of change the culture to some degree and make people more aware than they are now of um, how their data is really. Uh, being used to make large amounts of money for big companies. And uh, so we'll, we'll see if that actually happens. And Amy, what's your take on this? Well, uh, I think Mike is 100% right. Uh, and I also think that it's, it is going to uh, liven the discussion in D.C. For, for a national privacy law. And I think, and people have mentioned this before, I think uh, it's going to raise the standard for what's, what's in a national privacy law. And it might even uh, have people in D.C. talking about a, a data protection agency that might be needed. Um, so, you know, even though we're not sure what's going to happen in Congress, I think it is at least raising... The conversation of what's needed for privacy protection. Amy, Mike, it's uh, been a pleasure as always. Let's catch up again very soon. Thanks, James. Thank you, James. Amy Miller is a senior correspondent covering privacy and Mike Swift is MLEX's chief global digital risk correspondent. Both are based in San Francisco and we'll post some of their analysis to the usual place, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com click on the Insight Center tab. And my superiors urge me to remind you that you can subscribe to MLEX Podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and Stitcher. And please help us spread the news by recommending us to a friend or even someone you're not particularly fond of or leaving a review. And that's it for now. We'll be back in your feed next Friday morning GMT. My name is James Paniki. I'm MLEX's Asia-Pacific Senior Editor Thank you for your company. I'll catch you again next week. Bye for now.